Alright, Nicole, we are here in a rented booth. What is this? It's called a Jabber Box. Oh, a Jabber Box. Okay. We're in a Jabber Box. <laughs> it's basically a phone room that uh, you see in the airport. We had to pay a fee to use the Jabber Box. It's a dollar a minute. Hour. Yeah, we, we paid a dollar a minute. No, no, no. I guess we paid 50 cents a minute. Yeah, $30. Yeah, so feel special, folks. You're worth 50 cents a minute to do this episode. <laughs> Uh, but we're I think the, he just wanted to test this out to see if we should get them for the office. Well, I knew I wanted them for the office, but every time I look at these things, they're like eight to twelve grand. They're insane, but it comes with like a nice touch screen and a camera. It is pretty nice. Well, we're he- we're here in the airport. We're leaving the Uplift conference. We're about to catch our flight. It was delayed. I saw the Jabber box. I'm never allowed in the maternity box that they rent out at the airport. So Jabber box, I'm allowed in. So. Now not have to do. No, not have to do. All right, so in this episode, what are we talking about? We are talking about um, a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of key takeaways from the Uplift Conference. We dive into some of the keynote sessions. We talk about social connection and what that means for happiness. We talk about behind-the-scenes information we learned from Ed Catmull from Pixar. Um, what else did we talk about? We covered a lot. We talked about, like, the experience economy. Yep. Uh, the experience economy and really going from um, a commodity-based business to services to experience then ultimately to transformation. Talk a lot about Hilton uh, and examples because Hilton was a big theme of this conference. I didn't realize and it's your favorite fact now so I'll let you say it. They were ranked number one best place to work two years in a row. On planet Earth. Uh, yes. I am still blown away. I'm going to be telling everyone this fact. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's a, I can't imagine, you know, getting on that list once, but two years in a row, I don't... And to they be said no one. one else did it, right? No, no one else has ever been on the list twice, I think is what they said, let alone number one twice. Was it Forbes? That was Forbes, but then there was Best Workplaces. They were number two, actually, at Best Workplaces. But yeah, Forbes was the number one two times. Impressive. Yeah. yeah. So we talk about all kinds of stuff. Basically, we really recite everything we learned at the conference and pretend it's our own we, ideas. <laughs> we, we give credit. We try to recite. We have a lot of notes in front of us, so it's a lot of good information. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that interests you. Then uh, tune in. Okay, so let's see, let's cover a couple topics that we're, I don't know, we found interesting or whatever, want to ruminate on from the conference while it's fresh. Yeah, I think one of the big key takeaways for me was the first keynote speaker. Um, it was Shawnee Kaur, who is the author of both The Happiness Project and then his newest book, which is called Big Potential. He seems qualified because he's a happiness researcher and his wife is also a yeah. happiness researcher, <laughs> so it seems like... They have a pretty happy life, or you would hope they have a very happy life. Um, all right, so what's his? what was his big takeaway, or what was he covering? Because I, I do think it helps set the stage for the entire conference. Yeah, and I feel like he probably covered the most content in the least amount of time. Like, number one, he talked super fast, so you kind of were <laughs> trying to keep up. But I think he also just tried to give you really, like, he did a good job of weaving stories in with the data and the research. So it wasn't just numbers and studies. It was real-life examples of how those could um, be manifested. Yeah, he seemed, um, well, my big things from him, at least, and this is the theme that I felt like I kept carrying throughout the rest of the the speakers in the conference, was he was like, basically, there's a negative cycle that can happen with people where if you... um, 
he gave an example of insurance, um, in, or not insurance, tax adjusters. And he says, like, this, the company that he was helping um, was, uh, it was a tax company. And so these folks were trained to look for errors inside of tax documents. And then they were rewarded for this, obviously, because it's like, now you're a great person at finding tax errors. And he was saying that because of that, it was putting these folks into a negative mindset uh, that they would take home with them because all day they're just looking for flaws. And then when they got home, he had the example of one individual who ended up just looking at flaws within his wife or his children. And it, he didn't even mean to. It was just he had been conditioned um, to, to find flaws and to be rewarded for flaws. And so um, he had ended up this, not to go too deep into the story, but that individual had ended up making Excel saying, okay, well, here I've identified all the flaws of my wife. I'm going to set a time and we're going to talk about these and get them worked out. And that didn't go over well with the wife. And so now uh, the guy wasn't having a very happy life. And so what, Sean, mm -hmm. right? What he said was, okay, so that was the, that's this negative feedback loop. And so um, he gave another example of a feedback loop with Tetris. So he was saying that, I think it was Harvard did a study where they, they forced kids to play Tetris for, for eight hours, and then they started seeing Tetris in their life, like dreaming about Tetris, like all the grocery store shelves like looked like they were Tetris blocks because they, were, they had then conditioned themselves to see this pattern. So if you are conditioned to see patterns, that's terrific. You can become very efficient at what you're doing, but you have to be cognizant of what that can do to you with the rest of your well-being in your life. And so a lot of his recommendations at first, like takeaways um, that he said when, you know, as you leave this session in the conference was more about how do you develop these positive reinforcements or these positive things so that you can reinforce happiness as opposed to things like, like error, like spotting errors, like in the, in the case of the tax prep guy. Um, and so little examples he gave were uh, gratitude. So he says, I, and I've heard of this before, I've heard of the gratitude journal, but I didn't really understand... I mean, I'm, I'm usually a very concrete individual, so I didn't understand, like, the point of gratitude journals, like, why, why people do it. But now that it's the science behind it has been explained to me, now it makes sense why you would say, okay, uh, so for Sean, he was like, you should make a habit of spending two minutes each day, um, just, just two minutes a day writing down three things that you're thankful for, that, that you, you're grateful for. And he says that that, after, after three weeks, he says, okay, you'll, you'll see good things, but if you stop doing it, then you lose, you lose the momentum and it's gone. And usually people think of three weeks as a habit. But he said if you do that for six months, then th that's when kind of this crossover happens, where now, after six months, you have this crazy momentum of this, uh, this self-fulfilling cycle about gratitude where now you have conditioned yourself to see the happiness in things instead of just the like sad and things yeah it's, it's super interesting and he talks a lot about the way your brain processes information so almost retraining and rewire rewiring your brain to focus on um positive things that are happening in your life right right and then he um what did he say oh shoot now i'm gonna blank on it six months training your oh he one thing that was like starting to concern me because I liked where he was going but when he was talking about this and I was thinking about it was during the session I was like well shoot does this mean that you're tr you're basically training people do you want people to be blind to the negatives because he was talking about folks that are that are risk assessment people and that if they um, you don't want to train them to not see the risks right and he talked a lot about pessimists versus optimists. And he says the difference between the two groups is 
pessimists believe that their actions won't uh, won't impact the situation, versus optimists believe that their actions, like henceforward, may impact the, the situation. And so he says, like you can be pessimistic in some parts of your life and optimistic in other parts of your life. But where the concern came in for me was uh, at first was like, oh shoot, are we going to train people not to have their eyes wide open where they may see an error or something like a failure point because that is conditioning the negative part of their brain? And he was saying, no, 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 that's not the problem. Hence the pessimist versus the optimist. You can have an optimistic um, tax adjuster or what have you. So this person is like, hey, I'm going to spot something. And you know, the great thing is I can do something about this versus like, Hey, I spotted a failure, and there's nothing we can do, and we're all doomed. So I thought that was a good takeaway for me, too, because at first I got worried about getting too down the happy track. You know, what am I going to cut out of my life? You know, whatever. And he, you know, as he explained it, it started to make more sense how I can actually adopt this moving mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. The other thing that he talked a lot about was the aspect of social connection. So we briefly mentioned, I think, on the first podcast, how Better Up talks about the employee experience, and they did um, all this research. This is there's 160 components that go into employee experience, but then they boil it down to six, and those six are authenticity, engagement, optimism, social connection, belonging, and then meaning and purpose. And are these the same six? Sorry that that you're saying this is part of his research that matches with Better Up. Right, I was just kind of setting the stage. This is the Better Up research. Okay. Um, and he talked a lot about how social connection is the number one predictor of long-term happiness. Mm-hmm. So he gave a lot of examples about, you know, obviously we're living in this digital world. Loneliness rates are actually up 200%. So, you know, we're more connected than since, ever. Since like 1980. Right. Which surprised, well... Yeah, it surprised me. Because he, he was saying we're in the most connected world we've ever been in, but yet we feel the least connected. Right. And, and so happiness is at basically a low. Yep. And he was also saying that because of that, um, you know, one of the more, I guess, takeaways or action items you can do is really to have a strong social network. So there's a ton of studies that he talks about, um, but one of them was the perception and reality study. So basically they put all of these individuals um, and showed them images individually of a hill. I'm assuming it was in California because I think he said it was. um, Where did he say that study was done? I don't know where he said the study was done, but the hill, that's all that matters. (laughs) It's a hill. Yes. So he showed them images of a hill and then he did that same experiment, but this time they were with a group of people. And with the group of people, the participants responded that the hill was 20% less steep than the individuals. So I feel like I'm kind of botching this setup here. But if you're you're by yourself, the hill is 20% more steep than if you're with someone else. So the whole takeaway there is that, you know, are you with someone and or are you alone? And that really... um, kind of affects your ability to, to see if you can conquer challenges. So really having a strong network and connecting socially, um, there's just so much value in there and how that's related to your happiness. Yeah, well, that tied in a lot to the whole coaching overall theme that they were, that obviously this conference was about since that's what BetterUp does. Uh, but to your, just to hit hit home what you're saying is if you're if you're doing a task alone, 
it appears 20% more difficult than if you're doing a task just with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so that tying that back to coaching, they said like if you're trying to make a transformative change in your own life or take on like a new skill, if you if you're just doing it on on your own with no support, it that 20% may be so much that it feels impossible to do this thing or insurmountable versus if you if you just have someone else you know holding your hand or, or doing it in tandem with you now that 20 percent may be enough that it that it seems doable and we can put the first step forward right so um i thought what was really interesting about some of at least the research he cited was the mirror test and it makes total sense i mean we had done this i think we talked about this on the google um podcast uh, but at that conference we we had Eric Qualman was that was the author that that they used as one of the primary speakers and he had us do the smile test where you basically grab someone that you've never met before and one person has to try to keep a blank face and one person needs to smile real big at them and and you see how difficult it is that if someone's smiling at you that you can't about not smiling back mm-hmm. you're just basically a cold-hearted individual you can't <laughs> smile back um, which I was next to an HR person from Stanford, and she smoked me when it came to, like, not smiling. She did not smile at you? No. She, <laughs> later, she lied and said that she did uh, when, when she raised her hand, saying, oh, I cracked. I'm like, well, if you, uh, if you cracked, this is... Maybe that was her version of smiling? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyways, I, I didn't even try to hold back. Since we'd done it with Eric Qualman, I was like, F it. It's way less uncomfortable here to be smiling back at the person than it is to, like, try to be the, the jerkwad that doesn't smile. Anyways, the mirror test, what I thought was fascinating is he took it further than Qualman, and he said that that, uh, he cited another study that said, okay, now let's say that you're standing on a train platform, and someone starts, like, shaking their leg or looking at their watch nervously or whatever, that that nervous energy transfers to everybody else in the group as well. And that surprised me, and he called it actually as impactful as secondhand smoke. So he said that uh, basically nervous energy or negative energy, and it, and you know how I am about when people say about the energy, Nicole, of this individual, like how I sometimes have had trouble with when you talk to energy, when people talk to energy, like about your aura right. or whatever. Yeah, that does not connect with you usually. Not usually. But back to this, I understand the nervous foot tapping, the looking at the watch. And if that happens, like, if, then he's saying that that transfers to the rest of your group and the rest of your team. So if you have one person that's, like, not really engaged in the conversation or is checking their watch in a meeting or whatever or distracted on their thing, that that is infecting the rest of the group just like secondhand smoke would be. And that nervous energy in a culture can, can have a significant impact just because people are mirroring. And, in fact, Reed and I were just um, talked about two about that with a consultant that we were looking at on the engineering side he was like you guys need to like i feel the energy and the passion but you guys really need to just like calm down and like um you know because this this is not healthy to to be as i guess amped as we are all the time so that really stuck with me mm-hmm. yeah that's a great one um something that i think we could take back i mean to digital for sure but to really any organization um, is that he did a, a lot of research um, on both employees and company side, but also students and universities, um, and really kind of gauging their excitement from when they first start something to when that excitement starts to taper off. So when you first hire someone, they're super pumped. Maybe the first few weeks, they're like excited, ready to ready to go. Their energy is, is really high. Um, but he said it was. 
uh, unanimous that in both sets of both the company side and the students, that four weeks in, excitement starts to wear, wear off. Mm -hmm. So really just having that knowledge and being aware of that, I think, is really helpful to just kind of pay attention and say, okay, well, what can we start doing around a month after someone's been here to you know keep them engaged, keep their excitement up, um, and just really pay attention to that data. That actually connects a lot with the session they did on the second day or third day, however you want to say it, the en ending day, but mm -hmm. they had said that someone needs or someone is most engaged with basically making new behavior changes on their own, to your point, like in the first four weeks of them starting a new job, new position, being hired, taking on a team or new team member, and that's when folks are sort of like the most willing to accept, um, I don't know if I want to say change, but most willing to, to work on something, such as he talked about, like if you just start a new job, you're super into time management, or if it's your first time managing, like you're super into into time management because you're it's a new gig, you don't know what's up, and so like you are consuming articles naturally and having conversations about that stuff, it's present in your mind. So I, all I'm saying is they were saying like take advantage of that as kind of right. That's kind of what I was thinking. How do we maximize those first few weeks when someone is operating at that type of level? But also not fire hose them too much, right? Because we we suffer with that now. Yeah, I think that's a, a lot of companies suffer with just the onboarding process, but I do think, yeah, when you first join, there's just so much to soak up and so much to learn that right. we can definitely get better there. And with us, in, in our, we have a more formal process the first two weeks that someone joins, but after two weeks, it breaks down a bit, and it becomes almost like a now it's your responsibility to self-learn. Right. And some folks are better at that than others, so certainly we could do... I mean, we have ongoing lunch and learns and things like that, but it's not as, as structured um, as far as a formal training. And, and I know that's one of our goals this year that we're working yeah. on. with Because each team does it a little differently, too. So you get such a different experience, and we want to try to make that a little bit more cohesive. Right. So back to your point, like, okay, great. Our first two weeks, or let's say our first four weeks, there's a lot of concentration on that. But four weeks in, you can't... Um, well, you just can't sit back on your heels. You really should, as you're saying, like that's when someone's going to be less engaged naturally anyways is after four weeks. And so you almost need to be more present then as a, as a leader or, or manager or coach. Yeah. Well, I thought I got a lot out of his session. I don't know if you want to go through anything else in particular with him, but I thought overall, I, I guess I'd heard of happiness researchers, but he was the first, I guess, happiness researcher that I felt like the intensity of the passion coming mm -hmm. off of him he went way over his time yeah and he just he just like r rambled on about things and had these ra like he had zero slides um and it seemed like zero note cards he was just from the hip and but it, yet it was super well structured he had everyone was engaged like <laughs> super engaged leaning in. yeah it was great yeah his passion was like palpable it was it was awesome so I thought he did a fantastic job. I, I can't wait to read his book. Uh, particularly, he said his favorite work ever was that um, the second book. What was it? The, the new big, book, Big Potential. Big Potential. I, I can't wait to read it. It seems super interesting. But I didn't, uh, I mean, I'm sure we could spend an hour on each of these. Right. But did you want to hit anything else, whether then or, uh, or now, or how do you want to do this? I also feel like I can talk about that session um, particularly for a while. I have a lot of notes on it, but I think we can move on. Cool. All right. Well, let's move on then. What, what's, what's next? Ne what's next? What's next? Next takeaway. 
Oh, I have so many notes from his session. <laughs> I'm scanning. Um, well, this is, I feel like, right when I started, uh, the next session was actually the employee experience session, and I didn't have nearly as many notes on this session, but I guess I should have been maybe more engaged with the word employee experience, because that came up constantly, and now after, like, I don't know how many hours of, like, hearing, like, having it force-fed in my, my ear tubes, um, basically... You know, everyone talks about customer experience. Now, folks, and I'm sure anybody that has any, you know, touch of HR would be like, you didn't ever hear about employee experience before. It's like, no, it was not on my radar. It makes sense, though. So uh, employee experience came out of directly, like, customer experience. If you talk a lot about customer experience, then it's like, well, let's talk about how our employees are, are you know, what, what their world is like when they join a company from every touch point. It's so broad though that I felt like that was a challenge when they talk about like employee experience scores. It's like, shoot man, someone spends more, we always hear this, more at work than they do with their family. So then where can you really get the best bang for the buck on the, like trying to improve your employee experience? And then frankly, and we were trying to get at this with the, the Hilton, so uh, maybe we matched two sessions here, but Hilton was is a big customer of BetterUp, mm -hmm. and they were um, talking about their improved scores, and in particular their Thrive program. And uh, it's there's so many angles. Like Hilton was talking about like redoing the uniforms, about redoing the like inner workings of uh, what they call it, the heart of the heart of house. So basically, the behind the scenes area for staff, for meals, um, locker rooms, things like that. Right, and then they were talking about trying to measure. The ROI of things. So for one, th uh, I'll give one thing. Uh, those listening to this um, podcast may have been at Optech, uh, was that November of this last year, nineteen, mm -hmm. and that was held at the Hotel Anatole in the Dallas. Hilton Anatole, yeah. yeah, 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 Hilton Anatole, and they said that that um, hotel employs more than a thousand people, and that they were suffering from sixty something percent turnover rates 66 percent turnover rate every year there you go insane it's crazy insane and so they um they ended up launching hilton thrive and in particular this heart of house so heart of house is basically anything that th that normal patrons wouldn't see so it's like you know the kitchen or the hallways or the laundry facilities and and in particular it seems like a big initiative they did was they reworked the lunchroom so the lunchroom was like fluorescent lights I did. It did look like this was. They were aware of this for for a little while because that the picture of the old lunchroom had uh, different colored walls. Like yeah, fun I think colors. they had tried it. So and it's it like failed. we tried. We painted the wall yeah. orange, uh, but it's still fluorescent lights, and you still have like cafeteria style mm -hmm. seating, and so this gets this is really depressing. So they return. They they spent money to dress it up and make it look like a pub. So now the lunchroom still has fluorescent lights, but it's got like what looks like reclaimed wood like yep. bars and tables and stuff so it feels like a pub when you're there and there was that in particular they, they focused on harder house at anatole and they said the first year they ended up reducing turnover rate by do you remember nicole i think it was 12 percent. 12 percent after two years nine percent after year one okay. and an additional three percent in year two and they said that just in that first year that saved them over one point i think it was Five. one one yeah 1.5 million bucks and just the turnover from that one building, mm -hmm. just by redoing their like lunch and, mm -hmm. and some other some other areas. So I thought that was really interesting because they they were saying that they were aware that this was an issue. 
because they had uh, on their annual employee survey they have uh, I think they said a 96% response rate and people were complaining about the facilities Anatole is a very nice hotel but apparently for the working staff on the inside it wasn't super nice yep. then they just sort of humanized it a, mm -hmm. a smidge and all of a sudden they they drop 12 points and they save you know over a million bucks a year that's significant how did i get on this track oh employee experience <laughs> so employee experience is everything from your facilities which i mean we're investing in a new office space so that made me feel good like okay there's a value here it's mm -hmm. not just having some cool digs but there's actual like human happiness value here and, and ROI associated with that. But it also impacts as your like every touch point, the the way you receive your paychecks, the way like the uniforms you're required to wear. Like I remember we have some clients out in California and they the highlight of their summer is the fact that they get to wear like jeans on Fridays in the summer. And it's like just that little thing just sparks it for them. Mm -hmm. Um so I just it wasn't, I mean, I, I guess I've thought of our employees and what life is like for them, but I hadn't thought as much about, like, how do we treat employees, think of them like employees or customers, like employees are our greatest customer. Yeah, I mean, that kind of ties to the whole um, theme of, I think it was that panel where they were talking about how your employee experience mirrors your customer experience. So whatever your employees are experiencing internally is really what they are projecting when dealing with your customers. So I thought that was a great way to kind of connect those six pillars of what employee experience means um, and know that, you know, if we're doing things as an employer to raise that overall score, that's going to affect the way that our employees handle our customers. So I think mm -hmm. that was a great tie-in. Yeah, I also thought it was, well, for me, really... I don't know, I want to use the word unique, but Hilton, I mean, Hilton was like all over this conference, which I thought was great because there's a lot of parallels from hospitality and property management. So for us, this was helpful. But um, they said that when you, a lot of times, um, and this ties into a later speaker, but he talked about the, uh, do you, shoot, the economy of... Experience. Yeah, the economy yeah. experience. Thank you. And he was saying, like, you can start as a commodity, and then you move up from a commodity to a service, and then you move up from a service to an experience. So his example was a commodity is coffee. And he said, uh, and I have this in a later thing, but, like, uh, a commodity is coffee, and then it moves up to, um, uh, like, a bo uh, the grocery store, which is, like, selling coffee beans or whatever, and then it moves up to a bodega or 7-Eleven that might, like, brew coffee, but then it moves up to an experience, <laughs> and that's where Starbucks came in. And Starbucks completely rewrote it because Maxwell was thinking of themselves as a commodity, Maxwell House, and Starbucks saw themselves as an experience. And so mm -hmm. that's how they were able to get now, like, four or five bucks out of a cup of coffee versus Maxwell House, what he was saying, was getting... A couple of cents, like two cents mm -hmm. per cup of coffee. So, um, and he talked about the different economics of each of those levels. And he said, well, this sounds great. And you would think Starbucks, this is great. You've hit the top tier. But he says, the problem is experience is, is what it makes you feel at the inside. And on the inside, you usually get that feeling the first time, but not the second time, not the third time. So he's like, you have to keep innovating on your experience. Otherwise it will become stale and it becomes a commodity because anything that's uh, that you can replicate is a commodity. And that's that was really, 
I guess eye-opening for me because you guys, the team always hears me talk about like how can we make this formulaic, how can mm-hmm. we scale this, how can we like make it where it's just on, on freaking autopilot. Um, but as I heard it from him, it's like, that's true. Like, I don't think of Starbucks as an experience anymore. It's like, okay, it's around, it's ubiquitous, and I know what I'm going to get, and like, here I go. Well, I think what he also did a good job of tying in there was the mass personalization. So I think that was a way around how can you either at scale or for things that are like repeatable, um, how can you bring in mass personalization into that experience for the customer. So obviously with Starbucks, you can customize your drink thousand which ways, Mm -hmm. and that keeps the customers engaged and coming back and that they feel like they have this personal attachment or relationship with Starbucks. So I think that kind of ties back, Mm -hmm. you know, loosely, but I'm going to make the connection to what we do where it's like the order of which, you know, you're engaging with us or the services that we're providing each are a slightly tailored experience. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's what you hope. And, and it's funny because in in a lot of ways we've internally been talking about removing customization from things. Maybe that's the wrong word, but it's, if we do too many custom things, then, then we find ourselves matchmaking too much of the individuals that are working on things. And then that gets hard if we end up getting too much uh, customer interest in something that needs a customization thing that ends up really relying heavily on one individual. So I'll make this super easy and let's say that every client all of a sudden on Tuesday wanted a, a data science QBR done. It's like, well, Lurch has himself that basically does this as our chief data officer and he's only got so many hours in the day so he can't flip all those around on Tuesday like everybody else wants. So how do we make this uh, repeatable but also still feel cu- custom to the yep. client? And what I thought was interesting about the um, the um, experience the uh, experience economy that that he was talking about was that it's not a lot of times when people think of experience. So when he says like if you are trying to make a Starbucks competitor or whoever, you a lot of times people are thinking about like it's a it's a time exchange. So it's like we need people are going to spend a lot of a lot of money here if they spend a lot of time here. And so that's not it at all. It shouldn't be. It, you shouldn't equate time to dollars necessarily. He said movie theaters do that, and he said movie theaters are basically six. Uh, you're paying six cents a minute to be at a movie theater. But he said now when you when you think or tw- six, between six and twenty cents a minute to go to a movie. But when you are go to a um, like escape room, people are willing to pay eighty cents a minute for for their time there. And he said it's because of the the personalization of things. Um, and, uh, and how, well, again, people don't necessarily equate a single minute in the dollars that it takes. They, they like the experience. So those are the two ends of the spectrum. In the middle, he said Disneyland or Disney World. It's about 40 cents a minute. And so, like, great, yeah, Disney World is, people say it's expensive, but at the same time, they're really enjoying the experience, and they're willing to pay more for Disney World than they're willing to pay for a movie theater. Yeah, and just to hit on your time thing, um, to break those out he talks about services being time well saved so you're paying someone for a service it saves you time experience being time well spent so you're experiencing something you're having some kind of emotional connection to it and then um, where the goal or the ultimate um, result should be is in transformations which is time well invested so you're getting something back for that time that you put into it Mm -hmm. and the reason I got on this whole thread uh, was because back to Hilton what I thought was interesting is how they think of the employee experience is an experience of one. And some folks know th- know this, but I, I'm a big runner, so I do a lot of ultra-distance racing, so that's 
runs that are over a marathon in length. And whenever we talk about um, like nutrition or training or whatever, it, we always say, hey, it's an experiment of one. Because as much as you, well, well, as much as we're all similar as humans or as runners in this case, everyone is very different and what works for me is not going to work for you. And so I'm equating this back to Hilton because Hilton says the employee experience is individual. Yep. It's not It's not a group. It's not something you can really replicate if you're going to do it right. If you're really going to be nurturing, growing an individual, you can't treat them like everybody else. And so their example is they try to customize it even uh, as much as they can to the person, but just even in even bigger groups. So just down to the country or the city or the state or the or the property. And I thought one of the really touching stories was they had said Saudi Arabia just two years ago ended up making uh, legalizing women to drive because women were not allowed to drive there prior, I guess, the, to two years ago. And they said as soon as they legalized driving in, in Saudi Arabia, they decided we are now going to provide free driving lessons to every woman at, at, at Hilton, mm-hmm. at, at Hilton in the country of Saudi Arabia, because right. they'd never driven before, they had no idea, made them nervous, and as, to your point about the whole person, as the whole person, if this stress now is in your life, that's going to impact your work life, and so they said, hey, this is something we can do to, to, to make a difference to our people and calm their nerves, so let's give everyone driving lessons. Yeah, I thought that was super touching, like, really great story, but really focuses on identifying with what people are what they care about what they want to you know spend their time doing um, nurturing the whole person so yeah it was great yeah plus hilton has some big ass parking lots so you have lots of cones you can hit made it real easy <laughs> i hit so many cones <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know like their data on their like parallel parking success after uh going through training just saying all right you, you're up now well we kind of jumped around I think we hit a lot of key points but I do think that we cannot end this podcast without talking about Dr. Ed Dr. Ed yes the Pixar guy come on oh 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 <laughs> Your I was one. thinking like about the horse Mr. Ed you don't even know that reference I do yet. know that reference Mr. Really? Ed but I was not going there oh well he's like Mr. Ed alright go for it um ton to dive into so I really think that you should probably set it up um, but they were giving out his book which is Creativity Inc I think he mentioned that he was rewriting it updating a lot of the themes in the book to make it more clear and understandable um, but why don't you start by giving a quick summary of who he is for those that don't know yeah so he's one of the founders of Pixar he'd been there um, actually I think he said he worked underneath Steve Jobs for more than 30 years he had said that he had actually had the longest tenure of anybody that had ever worked underneath Steve. Um, So he said he really got to see Steve's transformation over time, but he didn't start there. He started with the journey of Pixar and how it started as a hardware company and then then failed, and then they went and they did um, Next, the computer company, and that didn't do too hot, but hey, it ended up surviving and making it, uh, making it out, uh, being acquired by Apple. And then Pixar uh, t- took another, uh, another leap at things. And um, Nicole's just checking our flight. Are we boarding it? No, we're delayed. Stay tuned. Yeah, we are delayed. We, we, we have to wrap this in a second. Yeah. All right. So um, then they, uh, Pixar went off, you know, went off and, and did the things it did. Twenty-two movies, and he said twenty. 
out of the 22 movies they've started, they finished 21 movies now, and he re really talked a lot about their process. So he said they did have a very strict process as a company and how they did movies, but at the same time, they tried to make sure that, of course, creativity was built into their process, and that's what really set them apart, I guess, from uh, the Disney animation studio that was struggling during the time that Pixar was taking off. Yeah, he talks about creativity being the process by which we solve problems, and he kind of opened up with a, a funny quote by basically saying, all of our scripts at first suck. It's like, mm. they all suck. I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way. I mean that in the genuine sense of they suck. So he kind of walked us through some of the examples um, and how the script goes from, you know, what it starts out as to what we all know it as, whether it's Toy Story or Up. It's like where it ends is so, so different than where it starts. And for him and his team, that's all part of the process. And it's very intentional. Like they, they want it to suck um, if they, you know, not saying if they have something good, they discard it, but they want to go through that process of um, it being super rough and then turning it into what it will become. Right. He talked uh, specifically, he used Up. He was like, when Up started, it was two um, brothers up in a castle, a floating castle in the sky, and then they somehow fell out of the castle. They were at war with the group on the ground, yeah, and then they right. were having this fight between the castle right. warriors and the on-the-ground warriors. Right. And then they fell out of the sky, they landed, and then there was a big-ass bird. Right. And he's like, and this sucked. He's like, this idea was terrible. The only no, thing that good. stuck was the bird, he said. Yeah, he said the bird, oh, and the, and the word up. Yeah. The word up remained, and then the bird. And then he's like, next version was like, uh, the dude and his wife, um, nice emotional story. They thought that emotional story was going to take 40 minutes of the movie before um, he ends up taking off and, and going, flying through the Amazon or whatever on, uh, and finding the bird. And he's like, the problem is, like, when, when they did that, the 45 minutes or whatever they thought that was, the, the setup of the story was going to be of gold ended up turning into four minutes of diamond. He was like, now this is great, but the problem is now we have four minutes of a movie, not 45 minutes of a movie, so this is an issue. And then he talked about how finally they ended up getting to, towards the later version, uh, or to the final version of Up, but it's like, and this is what I asked him at the end, you, you'll remember I grabbed the mic and I was like, asking him like, so you have these commercial, um, you have these, these deadlines you must hit as a business, these commercial mm -hmm. deadlines, but yet, as he's saying, like, they're going through massive changes in the movie right. and iterations, and so I'm like, how do you stay on schedule, and how do you force, force the issue or, or get to the point that the 21 movies get made out of 22? Because you're not, he, he sort of, he just said the difference in the business model between Pixar and Netflix is Netflix's shotgun approach, throw everything at the wall and maybe some stuff will stick and that's cool. And then the other stuff, like, you know, it's like survival of the fittest. And he said, that's not how they do it. He said, in particular with their ideas, if they, they take the elevator test, if you can explain the movie in an elevator pitch style, not going to work. Yeah. He was even saying like some of the leadership goals there for, um, the, it was for all about the crew, right? So he was like, one of our struggles was how do we protect the crew while working on something that we know doesn't work? Because mm. it's not going to mm -hmm. work until maybe eight months before it's released and the crew has been working on it for four years and everyone is just telling them it sucks. So mm -hmm. how do mm -hmm. they protect their mental well-being mm -hmm. their when resilience. they're just working on this project that's just not connecting? Right, right. Yeah, I, he didn't give me, he didn't seem to, at least I didn't take away like actionable advice about how you keep someone happy and oh no he he did he said it was like a captain he said you have to tell the um 
the captain of the ship, it's not that like you succeed or fail on a daily basis or with your tasks on a daily basis. He said it's it's did you lose the crew? So as long as the director or the person running this project hasn't lost their crew, then success. But it goes back to me like now, how do we keep these people on time? Right. Because I could have a crew and we go to the like moon bounce every day, and guess what? I'm not going <laughs> to lose my crew, but I'm not getting my crap done. Right. So I'm I, I need to dive back into his book and yeah. and figure that out. Yeah, he talked a lot about appreciating the problems you can't see. So knowing that there's going to be all of these roadblocks along the way, all of these things that you're going to stumble upon that you didn't predict for, but really appreciating that that's where the creativity is going to come from and that you have the right talent, the right team to embark on those obstacles together and then overcome them. And, and I hear, I totally, yeah, I remember that part. He also, though, and this, uh, this got me... Uh, but it, he said there are zero, uh, oh, sorry, how do I phrase this? He was like, people track metrics a lot in businesses. And so I kept, I loved how this guy kept bringing it back to business stuff. But he's like, when you're tracking metrics, it's not always a good thing. So he said, if your met, number one metric is that there need to be zero dumb ideas, that is a bad idea. Right. Meaning like, he's like, if you walked into a meeting and, or if, if I walked into a meeting tomorrow with the team and I was like, all right. The goal of this meeting is zero dumb ideas. He's like, you are going to lose You're the room. No ideas. Z- zero ideas, zero creativity, yeah. because it's like, it, it is, it, you don't then have the psychological safety yes. to do anything because you don't want to mess up. He said, on the other hand, you can't, he's like, there is a spectrum here. Right. And he said, that's kind of the million dollar question. He's like, you can't decide to have a hundred bad, bad ideas. ideas. Right. And so he's like, he hasn't even figured it out yet, right. but he said it was very important and, uh, and he, br- he brought this up and so did other people in other in other sessions but the whole google aristotle study that was like it's all about the social connection of the team and the strength of that social connection Mm -hmm. where people had the psychological safety to give bad ideas and give candid feedback on the ideas they're getting and not get their feelings hurt um and and speak up and he's like that's what he ended up calling the brain trust Take a breath, Staley. You almost went a little, a little much. But when, <laughs> when he said the brain trust, he said the biggest indicator of how smart Steve Jobs was was that he never joined a brain trust meeting. So they did this once a quarter on every film, and it would sometimes be a two-day off-site, but their whole thing was uh, it has to feel safe in the room, and you can't have someone like Steve. Famously, people say there's a reality distortion field around him where like people just act different in his presence and so they could only have people in the brain trust meeting where everyone felt safe and cool and so he said steve would call him the night before and be like what's you know what's the plan what's the plan and then would call him the day after and be like how'd it go how'd it go um but never would ed end up telling steve what had like gone truly gone down in the meeting he just said hey it's good or it's bad um, and then they moved on like that. And Steve knew not to press the issue because he knew he would have his distortion field kick in and that would ruin the creativity of the group. Yeah. The, some of the rules of the brain trust, some of the principles they followed, you kind of hit on them. But peers talking to peers. So they removed the power structure from the room. There was no hierarchy. It was everyone was present as a peer. Um, and people don't start, but they enter the discussion. So I think that goes back to the psychological safety and then having that presence. So peers, power structure, um, and then some of the guiding principles were you have to say what you think. So Mm -hmm. you give honest feedback, you listen, um, but then also he talked a lot about just being very conscious of the dynamics of the room. So 
are people, to your point earlier, checking their watch? Are they engaged? Who Who is in that conversation? Are they picking up on these microfacial expressions? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And when he said enter, he meant specifically for leadership or someone's a boss, spend at least the first 15 minutes not saying anything. Right. And just, and so Ed Observing, was saying... soaking it in, mm-hmm. and not, you know, leading that discussion, because that person is probably so used to leading mm-hmm. that it's natural for them to jump in. Yeah, I thought it was interesting was Ed was like, he's like, this these brain, brain trust quarterly meetings weren't 100% success. He said they often, like, resulted in nothing. But he said that was part of the process right. of the suck, right. of getting through it. And so the the objective was, again, for, for the director not to lose the crew and to, to try to keep the energy and the culture yeah. alive. And to remove the ego. So he talked a lot about removing ego from the situation and then removing your attachment to ideas. So he said the magic happens when you're in this flow state. Ideas are coming and going. There's no attachment to them. Mm -hmm. So it's not like if I raise an idea, I'm now married to that idea and I'm Mm -hmm. fighting for my idea. Mm -hmm. Um, The real true beauty comes when it's like everyone is just kind of throwing out these ideas, seeing what sticks, iterating on them, but not having ownership to them. Mm -hmm. I I know that we were trying to get out of here, but... I have to say this too, because I think this is applicable to to us and our client base. But he was saying that when they first were launching Toy Story, they were just doing it all internal with their own people. But they, he's like, the problem is we'd never made a movie before. Nobody had ever been involved in a movie, and so they had to end up relying on production people and producers from Hollywood. And so they brought people up from Hollywood to come to come help work on Toy Story for them. Toy Story is released and it's a smashing success. They go public the week after Toy Story is launched, but then. Uh, they're like, sweet, Pixar's working, public offering, great success, let's keep doing this thing. And they went, and those production people that they had, had that they had hired from Hollywood were like, yeah, cool, I don't know that I want to stick around. And he, he was like knocked back. He, he was on, on his heels because he's like, what do you mean you don't want to stick around? Like, we just did special cool stuff. They're like, yeah, no, Toy Story was great. And it was super cool, um, and, it, and it was definitely something special we did, but, you know, we're kind of treated like second-class citizens here. And the reason that rocked Ed to his core is he said one of their values at the beginning was that there was no inequity mm-hmm. at stake, that the creative people and then the engineers had the same pay curve as, as, as one another, the same responsibility mm-hmm. options and, and opportunities as one another. And then to hear that they had brought in some people from Hollywood and, and they felt like second-class citizens, he said that it just... He, he had never been so surprised in his life. And when he really dug into it, what he found was that, what they found was that the folks from Hollywood are used to working as a union, sort of like contract labor. Gig economy, yeah. A gig economy. And so he said that they're usually on a project and off project and on to the next thing. And their thing is not speaking honest and open about things because they don't want to piss off the director right. because they may not get hired for the next project because they don't have any permanency. And, uh, and that was very different than, than obviously what they're trying to do at Pixar, where everyone they're building a, a culture. And he said, so what happens is people just put up with the suck in Hollywood until they get until they get to the next gig and hope grass is greener. And so they had to completely like rewire the company. Um, and so the reason I say that's important is because I think when you're hiring outside contractors or teams or agencies to work on your stuff, whether it's us working with contractors or it's our clients working with us, you have to think of the impact that can have on the overall project because if the, if the two teams don't feel really integrated and like there's a different power dynamic, that can really impact the quality of the work and the project mm-hmm. that's done. Yeah, and really keeping in mind those core values of both teams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, Nick, we're gonna be late for our meeting or our, our meeting, our plane. Uh, so we gotta we gotta get the heck out of here. I have more than I may that I may want to talk to. We might want to do a follow up because I have a lot. Yeah. Stuff here. Yeah, not to overdo it as yeah. if like Professor uh, David and Nicole over here, but I'm I just I'm so uh, I guess like impassioned now about the subject, which I think is really well. That was a that's a great take. That might be a surprise, like uh, going into it. I guess I wouldn't have expected that for you. I definitely knew that we were going to get a lot of out of it, out of it. But you are very fired up, very engaged, and so I think that um, is surprising to me in a great way. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get out of here for now. And as we, you know, ruminate on this stuff in the next couple of days, maybe we'll do another one if if we think there's um, a reason. Let's do it. All right. Thanks. See you.